You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our network of international correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. This week, we'll be hearing from our new correspondent in Washington, Suzanne Lynch, as the first casualty of the Trump administration's gung-ho style of government bites the dust. Mike Flynn, the national security adviser, resigns after seriously misleading Vice President Mike Pence. In South Africa, Bill Corcoran reports on the continuing woes facing the country's President Jacob Zuma and the emerging race inside the ANC to succeed him. And from Beijing, Clifford Coonan on the significance of North Korea's latest nuclear missile test and the regional reaction to it. And what's this about the assassination of Kim Jong-nam, the older half-brother of the North Korean leader in Malaysia? Only 24 days into his new administration, and Donald Trump has been forced to give up one of his closest nominees, Mike Flynn, a no-holds-barred general who was appointed National Security Advisor. He's always raised eyebrows, was fired by Obama from his role as head of the Defence Intelligence Agency, and has been a regular guest on Russian TV. He was wont to chant jail her about Clinton at Trump rallies. On Monday, he admitted in a wonderful new euphemism that will join the Trump lexicon with words like alternative facts that unfortunately, Flynn said, because of the fast pace of events, I inadvertently briefed the the vice president-elect and others with incomplete information regarding my phone calls with the Russian ambassador. Suzanne Lynch, what actually happened? He, He lied. Well, look, this is the culmination of a controversy that has been brewing here for the last five or six days. And really, there are a lot of unanswered questions about this. Um, How much did the White House know about this? How much did Mr. Trump know? So this phone call that took place between uh, Mr. Flynn and the uh, Russian ambassadors to the U.S. in January, um, this this is the focus of attention here. Um, Mr. Flynn originally said that he did not discuss sanctions uh, with the ambassador on that phone call. This led to a number of Trump officials publicly stating that, including Vice President Mike Pence. Um, But then he rolled back on that last week and suggested that he may have forgotten that he had discussed sanctions. So, of course, the big question here is, did uh, the powers that be in the White House know this? Um, There was a report on Monday, just hours before his resignation, there was a report in the Washington Post on Monday evening that the former acting attorney general, Sally Yates, that she had warned um, White House counsel about this, about the fact that she felt that um, this Mr. Flynn had been had misled, in a sense, uh, the powers that be about this phone call. And uh, if that is the case, uh, the question is, why did the White House uh, not act on this in the last two weeks? Because Ms. Yates warned them back in January about this. Or was the information passed on from the council up to the, uh, the higher echelons of the White House um, following that phone call? Was it just chaotic management? So there are a lot of questions now about who knew what at what point, uh, and these questions are still unanswered. And, of course, uh, the, the, the whole thing has come out now, finally, because it's emerged that the, the Justice Department had intercepted the communications and had full tapes and, of the conversations between uh, Mr Flynn and Ambassador Kislyak. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think what's interesting, an interesting subplot, if you like, on this is the fact that there is an, an enormous amount of leaking going on from officials um, in the essentially what we call the civil service, if you like, um, against the Trump administration here. People who are willing to go to the press. And there's an ir- irony here that actually it, it's thanks to reports 
in publications like uh, the Washington Post and New York Times that this story has actually emerged. Um, so that's a kind of an interesting uh, angle to this. There's a lot of disgruntled and frankly very worried people. I've spoken to people myself here over the last few days who are working in the Department of Justice um, who, uh, who are concerned about, about what's happening. So that's quite interesting that, that, that what these conversations are being taped um, and they're being reported on and in some cases they're being leaked. Um, but whether we're going to get a full explanation uh, about this from Mr. Trump um, is unclear. Only on Friday on Air Force One, he was asked about the Flynn controversy, which is growing at this point, and he, he said flippantly, oh, what reports? I haven't seen any reports. Now, this was a, maybe a typical kind of flippant response from Mr. Trump, but it does raise serious issues about how much he knew um, and why he said at that point that he appeared to not know anything. Then we had a mixed report from his own team. So Kellyanne Conway on Monday said that Mr. Flynn had the full support of President Trump. An hour later, his press secretary, Sean Spicer, said that the president was evaluating the situation. So contradictory statements there from within the White House. A, it could point to just a chaotic handling um, of, of issues in the administration. Or B, is it suggesting maybe, you know, that either of these two figures, for example, could be next in the firing line. Um, after all, Mr. Trump is somebody who built his career on the ability uh, to fire people. Now, officials are saying here Mr. Flynn resigned, but of course, uh, it's understood that he did come up under pressure from uh, Mr. Trump, and particularly Vice President Mike Pence, who went out to back for him so publicly over the last few weeks. Yes, you can see why Pence would be uh, so uh, pissed off. Um, I know, and I think there is, um, I just looking back last Friday, actually, there was a really telling moment. It was during the press conference between the Japanese Prime Minister Abe and Mr. Trump, and the cameras uh, caught a shot of the Vice President Mike Pence walking into the room and shaking hands uh, with Michael Flynn just for a brief second. And that was the first time you could kind of see visually that tension between the two men. So I think there was a sense that once he kind of left uh, Vice President out to dry, uh, as, a, as it were, uh, then, then, then his, uh, his days were numbered. Now, the, the, this wasn't just a political indiscretion by, by Mike Flynn. Uh, these conversations with the Russian ambassador, uh, while Obama was still in power, were actually illegal. Yes, this is uh, this dates back um, to a, a law hundreds of years old that really, essentially, a private citizen is not supposed to engage in diplomacy. So this phone call took place well before Mr. Trump was inaugurated, um, and that is the main concern about this. Um, now, there is no suggestion at this point that he may be, you know, pursued for this, prosecuted for this, uh, but this is the ostensibly the reason he had to to stand down. Now, of course. The sanctions in question seem to be um, the sanctions that were imposed by the Obama administration um, following the reports of Russian interference in the election. And essentially, Mr. Flynn is accused of, of suggesting to the Russian ambassador on that phone call, you're not to worry, uh, to wait it out and wait and see uh, until uh, Mr. Trump uh, takes office. Now, another question, of course, is swirling around here is whether Mr. Flynn in that discussion was acting on the instructions of the president. Um, in what capacity was he having that conversation? What was his motivations behind uh, this conversation? So that's yet another unanswered uh, question about this, uh, this saga. And of course, the subtext of that conversation is the expectation generally that Trump is going to be a lot uh, softer on, on Russia, on uh, Putin, mm -hmm. and that he's, he's likely to support the lifting of, of sanctions. Now, with the removal of Flynn from this particular job, uh, presumably that also gives uh, Trump a bit of space to move. 
absolutely. I mean, I think the Flynn controversy will be kind of relegated to history books eventually, but this question of uh, the White House's uh, relationship with, with Russia is a much broader question that's, that's going to, to dog this presidency, really. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I think it's showing again, and um, this is a question that's refusing to go away. Um, it's not only uh, Mike Flynn, he was famously pictured alongside President Putin at a dinner in 2015, but it's not only, only Mr. Flynn who has these contacts. Obviously, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, um, had uh, significant business interests in Russia when he was chief executive of ExxonMobil. And, of course, as we know, Mr. Trump has publicly, repeatedly voiced his admiration for President Putin. And, and quite recently, it's only uh, eight or nine days since uh, President Trump, in an interview with Bill O'Reilly on Fox News, uh, was accused of equating Russia's actions with, with America's actions. He's accused of moral equivalence in, in stating about whether well, Americans have also killed people when asked about uh, President Putin's uh, track record. So I think there are serious worries here, um, not only in the Democratic side, but also significantly in the Republican side, about Mr. Trump's relationship with Russia and his stated admiration of President Putin. So you've got senior Republicans who've come out on that last week and were, were very annoyed at those comments uh, nine days ago. So I think what this saga is, is highlighting again is this controversy over the relationship between Washington and Moscow and uh, where it's going to go now in terms of sanctions. Now you've just you've hinted at it um, the possibility that others are are vulnerable and and I see in the American press that people like the chief of staff Reince uh, Priebus, your pal uh, Sean Spicer, um, and a, another aide called Stephen Miller are all being mentioned as the next likely uh, candidate to be fired. Well, I think there's been a lot of uh, speculation about the centres of power within the Trump administration and these fiefdoms, if you like, that have built up. Um, there have been reports of tensions between Priebus and, and Steve Bannon, the president's uh, main advisor. Um, he is seen as vulnerable. That, that is the chief of staff I'm referring to there. And also we've got contradictions uh, between maybe Kellyanne Conway, who, as I said, um, said one thing about Mike Flynn, said he had the full support of the president. And yet an hour later, Sean Spicer came out and said something entirely differently. Now, Sean Spicer in particular um, is alleged to be uh, worrying about his position, but in many ways that's because the White House has not yet uh, appointed a communications director. So when that happens, maybe we could see Spicer sidelined uh, somewhat. Uh, Stephen Miller was uh, a very interesting character. He um, publicly went out to um, do a number of media interviews on Sunday morning here in Washington uh, with some of the main cable channels, and President Trump afterwards tweeted his support of him uh, publicly on Twitter. So, you know, it, do we, we do have a sense that perhaps the president is kind of playing off these different figures against each other within the Trump administration, but it's definitely, definitely an intriguing story uh, to watch. Thank you very much, Suzanne. When we return, it's off to South Africa, where President Jacob Zuma has been in yet more trouble. Hi, my name's Hugh Linehan, and I just wanted to take a few seconds to tell you about the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. Every week I'm joined by our own expert analysts along with elected politicians and people who just have interesting political ideas. If you're interested in how the system works, how it could be made better, and what effects politics really has on your life, join me every Wednesday for Inside Politics. You can find it on irishtimes.com slash podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. Now to South Africa and its fractious politics. Last week's State of the Union address by South Africa's President Jacob Zuma 
halfway through his second five-year term, was disrupted by the most violent punch-up the Parliament has yet seen. But it's not the first time, and Zuma called in 400 soldiers to police the outside of the building. Bill Corcoran, Zuma is accused of massive corruption by Julius Malema and his economic freedom fighters. And there was complete chaos in Parliament. What's it all about? Indeed it was. This isn't the first time that we've had a punch-up in Parliament that has involved the EFF and the security there. It's actually the third time. Uh, The EFF, under its current leader, Julius Milema, who was a former ANC Youth League leader, have been gunning for Zuma uh, ever since they got into Parliament. Uh, Milema has has a, a particular beef to grind with Zuma because Zuma was part of the machinery that got him thrown out of the ANC. And since then, Zuma's star has fallen dramatically and the EFF have picked up on this. And he's been, in the last 12 months, he's been found to have broken his oath of office by the Constitutional Court. He's had 783 corruption charges are likely to be reinstated against them. Uh, They date back to 2005. Uh, They were dropped in 2009. And since then, the DA have been trying to have those reinstated. So there's a lot of history between um, the EFF and Zuma. And I just got to a particular boiling point last week. Uh, The EFF basically don't want to allow Zuma to take a platform. They say he isn't worthy to hold the office. And the main thrust of Zuma's speech was what? It was about black economic empowerment, which would have, you would have thought would be an EFF issue. Yes, um, although the EFF will always go more extreme to whatever the ANC put forward. Uh, the ANC has done particularly bad in recent elections. And um, with Zuma in his last year in power as head of the ANC, they want to, to do what they can to try shore up uh, their voter base. So they've started to espouse... Um, radical um, economic transformation as the way forward. They like to use the term um, the fight against white minority capital, which has um, serious racial undertones to it. But um, effectively, they see the um, South African economy is governed uh, and controlled by a small cohort of um, white male billionaires. So they've decided that the economy hasn't changed fast enough in the last 20 odd years. Um, Black people are still very poor in South Africa. So they see it's now time to um, push for these radical policies. But it it could all be just rhetoric because the actual implementing such radical policies is a far cry from talking about it. They've talked about this many times before and they've never actually done it. So we'll have to wait and see if they actually do get the finger out and start implementing some radical change. Now, as you you were saying, inside the ANC, there's a leadership uh, contest, particularly in relation to to the party's own leadership, which which I gather as a conference in December will will make a decision. And there are two main candidates, Cyril Ramaphosa and uh, Zuma's former wife, Mosazana Dlamini Zuma. How are they seen by the party and what, what are their respective chances? Miss Lamini Zuma, as you say, is um, President Zuma's former wife. She has recently done a stint as the AU Commission Chair, which she uh, stood down from recently. Um, she, the handover at the African Union will take a couple of months, so she won't be free of her duties there until about April. She is seen as a, a candidate that President Zuma would um, back, um, partially because they share four children together. As I said earlier in our chat, um, Mr. Zuma is potentially facing 
reinstatement of 783 corruption charges. And once he uh, leaves office in uh, the South African presidency in 2019, he'll want to ensure that there is somebody coming up behind him that will be able to protect him from any further prosecution. Aside from uh, uh, Ms. Glenimi Zuna, there is another frontrunner candidate in, uh, running for the ANC's top position. That's uh, Cyril Ram Ramaphosa. He was President Nelson Mandela's chosen one to take over from him as president back in the 90s but was beaten to the position by um, Thabo Mbeke. Um, since then, he stepped back from active politics and uh, became one of South Africa's most successful black uh, businessmen, a multi, I think a multi-billionaire at this stage. He has seen as a candidate that could help clean up the ANC. President Zuma's image of corruption has tarnished the party severely. So a lot of the anti-Zuma crowd were backing uh, Cyril Ramaphosa as their candidate. He has a lot of charisma, a lot of people skills. He was actually involved in a lot of the negotiations in Northern Ireland. He was a, a great tactician, was involved in the end of apartheid and the negotiations in transferring into democracy. He is from a minority tribe, a Venda speaker, and so that might won't stand in his favour because Zuma is, is a Zulu and the vast majority of the ANC at this present time its member base are Zulus. Do you think the membership of the party will split along along those tribal lines or, or, or on a left-right basis? Presumably uh, she represents a more left-wing populist uh, political uh, um, slant. Well, the great fear is is that it will split along the tribal lines. And Limini Zuna herself is a Zulu. Uh, the ANC, I think, something like 40% of its members are located in KZN. There is a strong worry that the, the, the tribal um, position will, will top anything else. And in terms of, of the election support at the moment, how, how are the ANC and the opposition parties polling in, in, uh, most recently? Well, the, the ANC have done the worst they've ever done in recent um, local elections. Uh, those elections were last August. They lost uh, seven and a half percentage points in terms of their voter uh, base, support base. They were down to something like 44, 54% of the vote. The next in line is the Democratic Alliance. That's a sort of a right of centre party that was used to be seen as a, the, the party for the, the white, um, the old white regime. That has got undergone a sort of a, a makeover in recent years. It now has a, a young black man called Musi Maimani as its leader. It has, I think it's up in the high 20s in terms of um, its take on the voter base. And then you have the latest party who caused all the eruptions in Parliament recently, EFF, the Economic Freedom Fighters, a radical militant socialist party under Julius Malema. Um, effectively, they see uh, parties like the DA and the ANC have sold out to the business communities and basically sold out black South Africans as cheap labour. They won 6.5% in the general election. And then in last August's local elections, they increased their voter base to 8.4%. Majority young men under 24 years of age and majority uh, black. Thank you very much, Bill. King Yong Nam, the older half-brother of the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, appears to have been assassinated in Malaysia. Clifford Coon, before we turn to the missile launch, what is going on? Well, what happened was that the half-brother of uh, Kim Jong-un um, appears to have been assassinated at Kuala Lumpur Airport by two unidentified female agents with poison needles, according to um, 
according to the Malaysian police, as, as reported then by the um, TV Chosen. The suspects who did it have fled the scene and the Malaysian police believe that it was it was some kind of hit by the North Koreans. He's an interesting character because he's the eldest son of Kim Jong-il. He's Kim's son by his mistress Sung Hae Rim, who was an actress who, who uh, was, was Kim's mistress, was the elder Kim's mistress for a while. Then after the death of Kim Jong-il, there was a succession row and uh, Kim Jong-un, uh, the current leader, was appointed. And the other Kim, uh, who's just been assassinated, he went sort of into exile and he's been living in Macau for quite a while. He was caught trying to enter Japan uh, a few years back uh, without a passport, saying he wanted to go to Disneyland. And there are some questions about his state of mind and and various things, but um, he's a very sort of intriguing character in many ways. Now, King Yong-un uh, appears to have some form in relation to bumping off uh, relations of his. Uh, did he not do something similar to an uncle? That's right. Uh, Jiang Song-tek, who was Kim Jong-nam, uh, his uncle, he was killed for treason. He was executed for treason in December 2013. Um, you might remember this was the case where there was speculation that he'd been blown up with howitzers, and then fed to the dogs. The speculation that he was fed to the dogs has since been has since been denied, although the rumours that he may have been killed by howitzers hasn't been denied. The picture you sort of see emerging about this is that there's quite a power struggle going on in North Korea. Um, the South Korean media are very keen to, to build this up into, into a big story because um, any signs of instability there obviously suit them. But at the moment, it looks that like um, Kim Jong-un, the current leader, is trying to cement his position um, but he is facing some opposition from within, possibly the army, uh, who were initially supposed to have backed Kim Jong-nam, who's just been assassinated and was a potential leader before Kim Jong-un was appointed. Now, turning to the missile uh, issue, the UN Security Council meeting on Monday evening in emergency session denounced North Korea's attempted test of an intermediate uh, range ballistic missile. Again, it's it's a flagrant breach of Security Council resolutions and the UN is urging members to redouble efforts to enforce sanctions, but it's a bit vague about whether it's going to increase uh, sanctions on North Korea. Kim and the North uh, have rejected the UN statement and claimed that the holding was a self-defence measure designed to protect its people. What is the significance of this fifth test? It's, it's a, it's a, the missile uh, represents some kind of an advance in the nuclear missile programme. That's right. I mean, I think what this is, is really um, North Korea saying hello to Donald Trump um, and letting them know that they're they're here, that their nuclear ambitions are undimmed and that their ultimate goal is to put pressure uh, on the U.S. Um, by using these these um, this nuclear program that it's been doing uh, now for several years. The timing was key because uh, Donald Trump was meeting Shinzo Abe, the, the Japanese leader, um, around the same time in Miami, uh, sorry, in Florida. And so there was a, a you know, the, the timing was very important to them because they know that the Japanese will, are also closely monitoring any kind of missile and, and nuclear tests that are going on in North Korea. So um, basically, this is a way of the North Koreans pushing themselves onto the agenda at a very high level uh, very early on in the Trump presidency. And, and testing exactly how easy it is to provoke uh, to provoke Trump. And in fact, uh, how did the Abe visit go? And the Abe visit seems to have gone um, pretty well. I mean, Japan needs the needs the U.S. particularly now with um, China's ascent 
uh, Japan feels that it needs its relation, its close relationship um, with uh, the U.S. more than ever. And also in the run-up, uh, we've seen growing closeness between China and and Trump, um, which doesn't help Japan. So in a way, it was good that that um, Abe was able to underline this historical closeness between the U.S. and Japan, and um, and spend time with Trump. And Trump appears to, you know, as far as we can read uh, what he's saying, seems to have been uh, he seems to have been encouraged by the visit himself. I mean, there seems to be a shift um, to some extent in Trump's attitude to to his Asian allies from demands during the campaign that they pay for their own defence. Um, to a new sort of warmth in Japan, in Korea, in China. He's backed the the one China policy. It would seem as if the US foreign policy establishment is beginning to prevail. It would. I mean, it certainly seems that way. Again, sometimes it's hard to to know how to interpret uh, Trump's actions, whether they're prompted by, um, you know, whether he's flying a kite and then suddenly things blow up in his face and he, he retreats, you know. And certainly I think that was the case a little bit with China, where he initially questioned the one China policy uh, over Taiwan and, and U.S. recognition of Taiwan, um, and then suddenly turned around completely uh, when the Chinese basically stonewalled him, and um, and he realized that he had to do something, or, or he could really threaten relations with what is, you know, despite all he says about currency manipulation and everything, China is still a hugely important trade partner for the U.S. And he realized, I think, that he had to do things there to to make relations better. And um, uh, with Japan, relations have always been warm, but he did need to reassure Japan. And I think he's done that. Um, so now I think the next stage will be um, how he'll take these, these this relationship forward. And um, particularly with China, which is emerging as a regional player, he still has criticized the South China Sea and, and China's ambitions there. And we haven't heard any discussion of that yet. So that's still out there as a potential uh, pitfall in relations. So I guess that's probably the next thing we'd be looking at to see how he um, works with Japan in terms of um, keeping a lid on Chinese ambitions in, in, in terms of Asian territory, but also tries to keep uh, what appears to be a warmer relationship with China uh, going. Thank you very much, Clifford. Thanks to Suzanne Lynch, Bill Corcoran and Clifford Coonan, to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Jennifer Ryan. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. 